0: We're starting this year off kind of looking at who we are as a church. What is our, what is our mission? What is our, our vision and purpose? And today we're going to begin looking at the vision of the church. And most churches or most people are familiar with this old King James Version quote that where there is no vision, the people perish. Perish. The translation in the English Standard Version and some of the others will also maybe give just a little bit more detail of what it means by that. And so it says in the English Standard Version that where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So in other words, where there is no vision, where there's no revelation, where there is no direction from God, people, well, they'll do their own thing. And that's kind of, we, we get that, don't we? People just want to do what they want to do. They will go their own way and and, and usually it always leads to disaster. At least that's what Proverbs tells us in chapter 16 verse 25 that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way to death. But we think we're doing good, don't we? That's where we fail. God has a desire that he wants to lead us to life and life that is the fullest, and life that is everlasting. And, and, and when we consider that, it's the opposite of the direction that most people take, which leads them down that pathway that ends ultimately in death. And that's why he's not silent, but he's actively seeking to find ways to make clear to us what his will is for us. And so one of the best things that we have is the Word of God itself. And it has the ability to communicate to us his directions and his guidance. And so we we recognize that that God has this ability to interact in our lives. And he wants us then to be a witness for him in our world. And and that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of who he is and our Lord Jesus Christ. and, And we find ways in which we can serve him daily. We worship him and the benefit from fellowshipping with other people. That's why it's good to see you all here because it'd be rather boring if it was just me. All right, So it's, it's good to have one another. And we experience then the, really the fullness of joy and the expectation that God has when we have the opportunity to come together as a church. The Bible tells us that God has a plan for the life of each one of his children. Not just an overall plan because he's got that. But for you specifically, he has a plan. God will, for each one of us, direct our lives if we're willing to follow Him. But beyond that, I believe that God has this this specific plan for me too. What do do I need to do as an individual? Now, in Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul tells us this, that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So God has crafted us for a specific purpose, a specific reason. And and he's done all this so that we'll have the ability to walk in those things and to do those things. Now the author of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And then it says, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. You see, each one of us, I believe, has a race that is marked out for us. And God has done that. He's laid out the path and and where we should run our life, and and it goes beyond that. He, he, He has also established the good works for us, which we need to perform in that race so that we can be victorious. Additionally, however, I need to understand that God not only has a plan for my life, But he often calls me to see that plan fulfilled in the lives of other people by my interaction with them. And really, that's what the church is all about. Yes, God wants a personal relationship with you, but he wants you to have a relationship with us as a whole. So that's part of his plan. You see... The minister, such as myself, isn't the only one who's called to go to a church. You all have that calling as well. Well, most of you do. Some of you were born here and raised here, and you've never gone anywhere else. But, I mean, you get it. We're called to be a part of something that's, that's greater than ourselves. And the church is that. Now, since this is so, the, the question I think that we need to ask and we need to seek an answer for is this. is Why has God called me to be a part of this church what is what is it what does he plan for for me in this and and that is where we get this idea of trying to see what his vision is for us as a whole what we are to be and to do not only as individuals but as a congregation it doesn't come just from the minister's direction or from the elders it comes from the Word of God and His vision and His desires for us. It's something that comes directly from Him. God has a plan for really what our lives are supposed to look like and how we're supposed to do those things and when we're supposed to act within them. Basically, as, as well, we had already said, we're supposed to get, get on with things. And, and how do we get in on what God is doing in His church today? Phil Grant in Leadership Magazine, uh, in an article, he wrote this statement. He said, a vision is the dominant factor that governs your life. It determines all the choices that you're making. It's, It's what's left after all the layers are peeled away like an onion, clinging like glue to the inside of your rib cage. It's what your mind naturally gravitates toward when it's not legitimately concentrating on something else. So then he says, it's what determines your friendships and your relationships that you're cultivating. It's what your prayers are about and what you dream about and what you're giving money toward. That's your vision. And it's, it's at the core of who you are. Now, as with a believer individually, so it is also with the congregation of those believers. The church also has a vision and God has a plan for a church. So, does our church have that sense of vision? Do we know what God is wanting us to do? Are we striving to fulfill that? We know what our mission is. We talked about that last week, making disciples who love God and others. But what, is, what do we want to become? What is it that He's driving us to? Well, whether a church has a vision from God concerning His direction for us, I think it's important in two ways. The first is this. It's important as far as the people are concerned. Because we've got to buy into it. We've got to acknowledge it and accept it. All right, God is in the people business and we should not be surprised Therefore, that, that whether or not we have a sense of God's direction for our lives we have a direct impact on other people around us by how we relate to them. In our world it's filled with people who are hurting. Some of those people have been hurt by the church. Others have been hurt by just life itself and people in the world, and and there are people around us whose marriages are in jeopardy. Maybe their families are falling apart, they're losing their jobs, people who are confused and they don't know really where they should do in life or where they should go, and people who, who have found that the things of this world just really do not satisfy them, and they need to see before them lives that are radically different than what this world has to offer. And so they will look to the church to see whether or not we get it. Someone once said that when you're a Christian, the whole world is from Missouri. Well, we're the show-me state, right? So so if you're a Christian, the world wants you to show them really how God has changed your life. What What is the difference about you compared to me? And we're there. As Christians, it is our role and responsibility to show people the, the life-changing impact of knowing Jesus. Peter wrote it this way. He said in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he said, The, the Lord is not slow. Oh, pardon me, I jumped way ahead. Steve Jobs with Apple Computers, once, uh, he, he sought to recruit John Scully from PepsiCo. Now, he didn't promise him that he's going to make him a billionaire. He didn't promise him all kinds of wealth and rewards from that. But he did challenge him with this question. And so Jobs asked Scully, he said, Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water? Or do you want to change the world? Maybe that's a question we ought to ask ourselves. Do I want to spend the rest of my life doing what I'm doing? Or do I want to be a world changer? Because each one of you can be. God issues the similar challenge to us, and he invites us to seek his face, to hear his voice, and really to do what he tells us to do, to be obedient to his commands. And, and for the sake of the community and the world in which we live in, we need to do that. Now, as a result, our church then, being in a fellowship with God, we're given this vision to do something in our world. And we can be used by him literally to change the world. He began with a church of 12 people, 12 disciples, and it went out from there. Now the second reason it's important for a church to have a vision is it's it's important as far as eternity is concerned. Now we looked at that verse earlier that where there's no vision, the people perish. What does it mean, perish? Well, I'll actually look at a word study for that. It, it means literally to, to let loose or to run wild. Years ago, we were given a dog. Um, Rocky was his name. He was a beautiful dog, big dog. And and, and uh, he was a loving dog for most people. All right? All um, right. But he had been raised since a pup on a chain, and he, and he had been leashed in the yard because they were afraid that he was going to knock Ernestine down, who was the elderly mother in the home. And, and so uh, they didn't want him to get to where he might hurt her. But then they felt this is kind of bad, just leaving him on that chain. And since we lived out in the country, maybe we could let him free and he could, he could just in, in endure. So we finally got him home, and we took him off the leash. And man, let me tell you what he was gone. He was just sniffing all over the yard. He was, And then he caught wind of our neighbor's dog about a quarter mile away and down the highway he went. And I'm running right behind him. <laughs> Alright? And every time we took him off the leash, that was exactly what happened. He ran wild. He went crazy until finally we gave up and eventually he started breaking the chain to get off. And we just left him alone. He stayed home, but he was a great dog. But Once he got his freedom, he was gone. And you see, the same thing as this. Without a vision, people just run wild. They do whatever. It also makes me think about the story in Luke chapter 8. Of how Jesus brought deliverance to a man who had been possessed by demons for his entire life. Matter of fact, they called him legion because he had so many demons possessing him. And he lived in the cemeteries out in the caves. And, and, and he, he cut himself and, and he scared people. And they were afraid of him because of how wicked he was. And just the distortment of life because of the demon possession. But Jesus interacted with him. And he released him he set him free from the demons. And there in that passage of Luke 8, it tells us the same thing, that they, when Jesus was going to get rid of the demons, they asked him if they could be sent into the pigs rather than be destroyed. As soon as he put them in the pigs, the pigs began to run wild. And eventually what happened is they ran off the cliff into the sea and they killed themselves. That's this terminology that's being used here. It's a picture of running wild, which ultimately ends in their demise. Now here, this is a picture of people without hope in Jesus Christ, really who it is. They're running wild. They're tormented by Satan. They're involved in a frenzied search for, for help, for deliverance, for peace, for, for hope. And they're finding nothing because this world doesn't have anything to offer And all the while, they're headed for that steep embankment and at the bottom of which lies their eternal destruction. But what God wants is this. He wants to keep as many people as possible from that kind of terrible fate. And he calls us, his church, to be used in a way to make a difference in their lives. He calls us as his people to join him in the work of inviting men and women and boys and girls and anybody He wants us to have this life and this relationship through him in faith in Christ, and he calls us to join him in the efforts of saving people from hell, and that's our task that's part of the vision of what he wants for us. So in 2 Peter chapter three, verse nine, the Lord says that he is not or Peter says that he's not slow in keeping fulfilling his promises, some understand slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, there's that word, but that all should reach repentance. Now a church with a vision is one where people who have sought God out for guidance as how we're supposed to go about reaching people for him. A church without a vision will inevitably Uh, find itself practicing religion instead of Christianity. Now you know the difference of religion compared to Christianity, right? Religion is where, where people are involved in trying to reach up to God and interact with Him and get Him to be a part of what's going on in their lives. But Christianity is just the opposite. It is God reaching down to us, wanting to interact with us and get us into a relationship with Him so that He can change our lives. A church with no vision does not understand how it's to partner with God and his redemptive work within this world. So constantly they find themselves just going through the motions Sunday after Sunday practicing religion. But the heart of the matter is all this. Which best describes our church? Are we a church that is driven by Christianity? or by faith, or by religion. Whether or not we have a sense of what God is doing in our lives and in this church and what His vision is for us, we're going to be doing to fulfill the Great Commission. We know that that's there, that we are to go into all the world and to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them, to observe everything that He's commanded. So, Last week, we looked at our mission statement that challenges us to make disciples who love God and others. This week, I want us to examine our vision statement as our church. It, it kind of goes right into that, but it moves on forward. We, we are to be a church that is making disciples that love God and one another with the passion of Christ that transforms families, our community, and our world. So to begin with, let's look a little bit at this passion of Christ, What is it? I mean, what was Jesus so passionate about when he was here in this world? Well, the first thing was obvious. His passion was that he was going to do the will of his Father. We see that there in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 42, that, that it says, as was his custom, he, he came and went out to the, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples, they followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Doing the will of his Father was everything that Jesus wanted. I mean, we even discover that when he's 12 years old. Well, mother, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house carrying out his business? He knew that he had to fulfill what God had done, so he was being obedient to his father by everything that he was doing in this world. And it's all about what the father asks us as well. It's not about what we think or what we say, but about obeying His will and His commands and doing what God has asked us to do. Jesus was passionate about being obedient to His Father and His will. And He explains what the Father requires of His people when He said in John chapter 6, verse 40, He said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up, on the last day. You see, the will of God is that you, me, your neighbor, your grandchild, everybody, that we will look to the Son of Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and put our faith and our trust in Him, that we'll believe in Him. That's what God's will is The Father wants us to believe in Jesus. It's not about what we're doing. It's not about who we are. It's it's not about being obedient to things in this world or just going through the motions religiously. It's about that relationship with Him. As Jesus was dying on the cross for the sins that we've committed, we have to recognize that He was there because it was the will of God. Now, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said to everybody, beginning in verse 23 through 25, If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The second thing we discovered that Jesus was really passionate about was he wanted to express his love for his creation. In John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, he says, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus loves the church, loves us, like his spouse, his bride. I mean, there's a deep love there. But it goes beyond that. He, he loves us and he even refers to us as dear children. And he's incorporated us into his families as members of his body where he is the head. So he loves himself even that way. He, he refers to us as the branches and he is the vine. So the branch is really dead if it's cut off and not a part of the vine. So he is our life-sustaining savior is what he is. And he has shown us that kind of love by adopting both our likeness and our cause in humanity. By taking on our nature and by suffering in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. And he made peace with us in this. And he made all suitable provisions necessary for our salvation for both time and all eternity. And there is this likeness between him and the Father as well. And he wants us to understand that in his Father's love. And so he loves us just as he loves the Father and the Father loves him. And he wants us all to have this relationship, this intimacy there. And so as the Father has loved him with a, a special and a peculiar affection, he loves us the same way. It's an unchangeable, it's, it's an invariable, constant love that is never going to go away because it's His love for us. That's the passion that He has. And in like manner, He wants us to love others the same way. Now the Father Himself is manifested in that love, and He tells us in John 3 verse 16 that that He loved the world, and so that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish. There's that word again. But have everlasting life. So, the question I ask myself is do I have that type of passionate love for those around me? Do I love you enough that I don't want to see you end your life in a demise of hell? Well, Jesus also had a passion to seek and to save the lost. In fact, when he was at Zacchaeus' house and some of the Pharisees were questioning why he was there, his response to them was in in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, when he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what I'm here for. That's my passion. That's my drive. I want to find people who are lost. And so we read through the Gospels, that's exactly what he did. He went after people that the world said, they're lost, they're worthless, we don't need them. And he went from town to town and village to village, and actually and home to home, searching for people whom he could interact with and redeem. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 and 13, Jesus made this statement. He says, "It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick." But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy." Not sacrifice, for I have not called to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus is passionate about people who are lost and who are dying. He's also passionate about bringing salvation to all who would believe. Paul writes to us in this in Romans chapter five, verses six through 11. And, and, and when you really put yourself in this, and you see yourself as the person he's speaking about, while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, for, no one, for one will scarcely die for a righteous man or a person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners... While we didn't deserve this, while we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. That's his passion. And since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were saved by him and reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also (coughs) rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, he's done everything. It is what has driven him is to make sure that you and I don't have to go to hell. And so he died in our stead. So how does God show his love? So. Where do we need to look to see the love of God? It amazes me that there are people in our world who still accuse God of being unloving. And they do. They've told it to you. Maybe they they can say, you know, how can a loving God allow millions of people to starve in Africa or over in Asia? How can a loving God allow an earthquake to take thousands and hundreds of lives? How can a loving God, you get this. But to see God's love, we need to look in the right place. The greatest demonstration of the love of God took place on a hill called Calvary. Upon a cross. There's where we see the demonstration of his love. His greatest passion. And when Jesus died on the cross in payment for our sins, he was displaying the most passionate love this world has ever known. Whatever else the cross means to you, it should stand as a constant reminder that God loves you. And His passion is to redeem you. And if God loves you, then whatever comes into your life will be used by Him for your good. Even the negative things. So what does that mean? Well, if we are to... Love God and others with the passion of Christ that transforms families, our community, and our world. There's this transforming aspect of those around us that we've got to enjoin ourselves with. Someone once said, you can can change people's way of thinking and you can change their lifestyles, but you've done very little until you are able to change their hearts. So how do we transform our families. Now let's go back to that hillside with the pigs that we talked about earlier in Luke 8. Jesus has just released this man from his captivity of demonic possession. And the pigs have just had their demise and have taken the demons with him into the, to the sea. But it doesn't end right there. You see, after Jesus brought this release and this healing to this man, the scripture tells us He wanted to stay with Jesus. He wanted to be his disciple. He wanted to go with him. And he was literally begging Jesus to let him go with him. And Jesus says, no. Go home. I think, what? And and I didn't catch it at first, but... But let's finish up that man's story. In Luke chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, listen to what it says. But the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see, Jesus was more concerned about changing and transforming not only this man's life, but his family's life and his whole community's life because he knew that this man was not going to go in and he was going to communicate what Christ had just done for him. Sometimes we don't want to get to work and do that. We just want to stay in our comfort zone and just love on Jesus ourselves. But that's not what he calls us to do. Jesus is more concerned about transforming this man's family as well. And when they see the radical difference in him, they've lost him. These parents have not had a son for years probably because of the demonic possession. They've lost their brother, but now he has been restored. And it's going to bring such transformation in their lives. Jesus sent him home to his family. You see, loving our families with the passion of Jesus does... More than brings us freedom, it changes the lives of those around us. The closest people in our lives are those in our family. And those are the people whom we should love the most and want to see that their lives are transformed. But He's going to do that through you and through your passion to love Christ as well. That's the greatest responsibility that we have is to share the love of Jesus with them. Now, throughout the book of Acts, we see families impacted over and over again. They're transformed because of this this power of Jesus in the life of just an individual. In Acts chapter 10, there's a centurion, a a man of position and power within the Roman military. And he lives over in Caesarea Maritima, and and he believes in God. And God gives him a, quote, vision, a dream to send for a man by the name of Peter who will come and explain the things to him. Peter finally comes, not because he wants to, but because God gave him the vision to see what needed to take place, and he went. Well, as Peter begins to communicate with Cornelius in his household, it tells us there that, that Cornelius, he gathered together his family and his friends, and he brought them all into his house because he wanted them to hear this message as well. And by the end of the day... Cornelius and his family and his friends and his household are all baptized into the name of Jesus and their lives are transformed because of his faith. And In Acts chapter 16 we see Lydia. She's a businesswoman. She's very successful in her business. And all of a sudden she encounters Paul and she's learning about this Jesus and it takes and transfers. She invites them into her house and eventually Lydia and her house, her family, they're all baptized in the name of Jesus. And then she starts a church and allows the church to use her home to meet in. You go on a little further in Acts chapter 16 and we see this jailer who's working the night shift there in Philippi. And this disastrous earthquake takes place in the middle of the night because God has interacted with it to release a couple of the guys who are being held prisoners um, without cause. And just as he's about to take his own life, God steps in and intervenes with Paul and Silas. He takes them to his house, to his family, allows them to hear the wonderful message of salvation through Jesus. And that night, he and his household and all of his family are baptized into the name of Jesus but it goes beyond just our families. We've got to have passion for our community. See, one day Jesus decided to take a road less traveled by most Jewish men and he's headed back up to Galilee and so he goes through an area called Samaria. And there's a field there and on that field there has been a well that was dug by Jacob, uh, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. And so he's sitting there at the well but they have nothing to draw water from to to get a drink. As disciples, they go on into town to, to get some food and some provisions, and while they're gone, this woman comes out of town of Sychar to get some water in the middle of the day, when most times you'd be doing that early in the morning. But the problem was she was trying to avoid people because of her lifestyle. You see, her life wasn't the best and really she was the focus of probably a lot of gossip conversations Uh, to be honest she was what you might call a a frequent flyer uh, with men she'd been married five times and now she's living with another man who's not her husband so she avoids people because she knows that they don't they don't really approve of her but she meets jesus there at the well and they strike up this conversation. It begins with just a simple thing. I'm thirsty. You got anything you get me some water with? And eventually he shares with her living water that will enable her to never hunger or thirst again. And what takes place is a result of all this. After her conversation with Jesus, she's determined that nothing is going to stand in her way of transforming her community for Christ. Not her past, not, not their disdain for her. There's nothing that's going to stop. So she goes back into town, and listen to what it says in verse 28 through 30 and 39 through 42. So the woman left her water jar, and she went away into town, and she said to the people, Come, see a man that told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word, and they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, loving our community with the passion of Jesus means that we're willing to go and put ourselves out there no matter what. Because they need salvation. We are to be, as Jesus says, the salt and the light in this world. And we are to infiltrate our communities with Christ. And our faith and our morality and our values and our virtues should be changing our neighborhoods and this community in which we live in. But it goes beyond that because we also have to have this passion that's going to transform and change our world. Now the early Christians, I don't think they realized how they were going to impact And transform the world for Christ. But they did. You see, somehow the world was affected as a byproduct of their transformed lives. They rejected pagan gods and they refused an immoral lifestyle of the Greco Romans. They knew that Jesus made no promises of an easy or a pain free life. And on the contrary, he predicted that they would be persecuted, that they would suffer, that life would be filled with hatred against them, and they would be despised and rejected as well because of their belief in him. And yet their transformed life continued to make them change the world. Just a few things. You see, the early Christians, they called infanticide murder. Rome was very well known for killing their babies if they were deformed or had other issues, or for population growth as well, to control things. They did that. The Christians said it's wrong. They said that God's commandment, you shall not kill, was something that we should obey. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, they said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and by testing that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, if unwanted babies were not killed directly, they were frequently abandoned. So the early church, they not only condemned child abandonment, but they also began to adopt them into their own homes to take care of them. Although they were severely persecuted, Christians never stopped promoting the sanctity of human life, and we still do today. It took a half a century of pressure before Valentinian. He was a Christian emperor of Rome. He was influenced by Bishop Basil of Caesarea of Cappadocia. That finally he outlawed infanticide. And it was abandoned in 374 A.D. Now early Christians also, they took a stand against immoral sexual behaviors and activities that the Greeks and the Romans participated in. They were motivated by by Jesus' words that if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And they knew that part of his commands was you shall not commit adultery. And they absolutely rejected immoral behavior. As a result, they were despised and they were persecuted even more by the world. And as that took place by opposing the Greco-Roman sexual decadence whether it was adultery or fornication or homosexuality or 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 any of the other things the child molestation, the bestiality everything that was as debased as you can think they introduced God-pleasing sexual standards in their world and said this is pure, this is right and it was one of the major contributions to civilization Promptly a contribution that many people who are in the church today don't care about anymore. And we see where our world is turning back to the pagan decadence of sexual immorality. And we turn a blinded eye to it. But we are called to transform the world with godliness and with his standards and his virtues and his morality. Because of the church, women receive freedom and dignity. Equality and a voice. Matter of fact, slaves were set free, and human bondage became unacceptable. The church has done that. Charity, compassion, hospitals, healthcare, education, economics, art, literature—they were all transformed because of the impact the church in this world. Because of men and women who choose and who made the choice to live by faith. And if we're going to love the world with the passion of Jesus Christ, then what we need to do is we must make every effort to change the world and its course of self destruction. You see, the passion of a Christian life it's marked by vision, it's marked by purpose and service. The passion of Jesus Christ is marked by joy that the world has no idea what it's like. It's marked by holiness. Purity. But the passionate Christian life is also marked by suffering. So Paul tells us in Philippians 1:21, for to me, To live is Christ, but to die, that's gain. So I want to ask you this. Are you willing to help us make disciples who love God and one another with a passion of Christ that transforms families, our community, and our world? Are you willing to be a part of this movement of changing our world for the better? You want to be a part of this church with a vision that loves God and others? And help us make disciples. Help us be who He wants us to be, and be a part of this. Let's stand together. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful for your love that you've demonstrated in life and in the death of your son, your one and only son, Jesus, that he gave himself up for us on a cross. And Father, I know it's nothing that we really want to seek, but he's called us to daily as well to pick up our cross and to follow him. That means that we're going to walk the streets of this world We're going to enter into our own homes around our family and and within this community and we are going to take with us your passion for people, for the redemption of this world and for reconciliation because we have broken that relationship so terribly wrong. Father, give us vision to see